good to see you all. It's great to be gathered together. This seems like uh, not only <clears throat> about the first legal day of winter, but we're trying to make a point. My understanding is next Sunday, Christmas Sunday, is going to be much colder. So we'll come with warm hearts. <laughs> we're going to be turning this morning to John chapter 1. And just before we begin, let me pray. Father, we are just so thankful every opportunity we have to come into your house, and we pray that we will glorify you, even as we know you will bless us with your presence. Open our eyes, we may see your word, and our hearts to receive it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm in the midst of writing an article right now. Uh, that's almost always true, but at the moment, the article I'm writing in particular is uh, one that struck me a matter of months ago, and I thought, I want to deal with that this year, and I'm running out of year. So, got to get this done. It was 50 years ago this year that Francis Schaeffer's book, He is There and He is Not Silent, was published. Now, uh, 50 years ago, I was 13. 50 years ago, I did not read that book. But shortly thereafter, I had the huge questions that led me to read that, to read that book when I was about 16. The book had been out about three years. And uh, I was desperately in need of some help with giant apologetic issues, just trying to understand the world. I, I had atheist teachers in high school. I had uh, just all kinds of things. Uh, I was in a, a study group in a particular academic program. It was three boys. It sounds like a setup for a bad joke. I was one of them. The son of the rabbi was another one. And a traditionalist Roman Catholic was the third. And uh, we were good friends. And we got into those lively discussions. And we were at that age where you can get into a discussion, but you have no idea how to get out of it. But we basically uh, were raising all the deep issues of life. And, and I knew that Christianity had to have the answers. But putting all this together was a massive intellectual maelstrom. And long story short, I was uh, given and directed to uh, this book, He is There and He is Not Silent by Francis Schaeffer. I still have the book, that a copy that I read. It's on my desk right now. It's number 67 in my library. So it's the 67th book, I think it is, that I had uh, added to my library. Back then, I was just putting a number in it. Now, I would like to tell you that when I read Francis Schaeffer's He is There and He is Not Silent, I instantly became an apologist and theologian. No, I, I couldn't follow about 70% of what he wrote. I just didn't have yet enough background to understand what he was doing. But I was right in a context in which I was getting a lot of that background force-fed to me. And uh, what made that book incredibly powerful to me in the first place was that here you had a serious, intellectual, conservative Christian taking on this massive intellectual shift taking place in the Western world and doing so sure-footedly. And uh, I, I kind of lived off of his confidence and conviction. But the title of the book became so determinative for my life and, uh, and, and ministry that two of my books are uh, honorific titles towards this one book by Francis Schaeffer. He is there and he is not silent. 
I lived on those two statements. He is there and he is not silent. Because Schaefer made very clear, and, and, and so the first thing he said about it is, he says, thus there is no nature and grace problem. And you're saying, well, I, you know, that was worth coming to Sunday school this morning. Uh, there is no nature and grace problem. If, if, if indeed he is there and he is not silent, then there is no distinction between a spiritual world and, uh, and the material world because he's the sole explanation for the fact that anything is here. And, uh, and, and then eventually just came to understand that the existence of God Specifically, the existence of the self-revealing God is the most important issue, not only in life and in thinking, but in the cosmos. We have to explain this. It either was made by someone or it was not. But if it was, we will have to deal with that someone. So, make a long story short, 50 years ago, and that book really affected evangelical life in a massive way. But I want us to look at John chapter 1 in order to look at some of the same issues. So, so I just mention Francis Schaeffer to honor him in that sense and to, uh, to just say that we are living in a time in which the text we're about to read is one of the strongest declarative statements you could imagine in any language. What we're about to read declares the meaning of the cosmos in just a few verses. It's one of the most audacious passages in all of Scripture. If it's true, it's true. If it's not true, then we're lost in the cosmos. I believe it is true. Let's read it. John begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all may believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. It's an astounding passage. I know you know it, and I believe we'll never exhaust it. You know that all four of the Gospels begin somewhere. The four Gospels are the four canonical, Holy Spirit-inspired testimonies about Jesus 
that tell us who Jesus is and what Jesus did and what he said. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, as you look at Matthew, and I've made a particular project of Matthew this year. I've preached in several churches uh, from passages in the first chapter of Matthew. It's an astounding, astounding uh, narrative that involves the parents of Jesus being the Holy Spirit and Mary, the parents of John, the elderly priest and his wife, and as I preached last week, John, the first preacher, when he leaps in the womb, when Mary, expecting Jesus, visits John's mother as John is in the womb. That was, that was the first Christological declaration by a human being actually comes from John in utero. There are all kinds of implications from that we could play with, but nonetheless, we had a prenatal preacher in Matthew. Matthew's point is to help connect the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament, particularly with Messianic prophecies. And so John will say over and over again, this happened in order that the Scriptures may be fulfilled. And then, of course, there's, there's Mark, the, most, the shortest, of course, but also the, the most fast-paced of the Gospels. And it begins in the public ministry of Jesus, in the beginning of Jesus' public message and preaching and miracles, and then it, it, it just flows very quickly, of course, to the conclusion of Jesus' earthly ministry. Not a whole lot of reflection in Mark. Uh, Mark is the shortest gospel, it's the, it's the quickest to read, but you know, when you, when you have the opportunity to give an unbeliever one of the gospels, or direct them to one of the gospels, throughout the history of the Christian church, the gospel that seems to have been most often recommended, for instance, to unbelievers is John, and yet John's is the most demanding of them all, but John also tells us more than anybody else tells us. Matthew wants to begin in the beginning of the story, but as he's thinking with his Jewish mind about the beginning of the story and, and, and thinking of it in a, in a canonical shape, he begins with the, the prophecies and then the fulfillment. Luke begins in his own way with the same Jewish background. Mark begins with the public ministry of Jesus, so there, there is no infancy narrative in Mark at all. But when it comes to John, John begins before the world existed. Now, this, this is astoundingly helpful. And by the way, it's either right or wrong, okay? So let's just, let's just face this. This is a propositional statement. It's a series of propositional statements. It, th this gospel is making truth claims. And about truth claims, what we have to say is, the first test is, are they true or are they not? And everything flows from whether or not this is true or false. And when I say everything, brothers and sisters, I mean everything. If this is true, then Jesus Christ is Lord, and He is the Logos of creation, and He is the Lord over all things. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the reigning Savior and Lord, and His kingdom will know no end. Or... Christianity is just another mythopoetic take on a meaningless universe. Now, I know you didn't expect that this morning, so it's all or nothing. Here, here I'm just going to tell you 
The Sunday before Easter, no, Christmas. Yeah, I don't even like to call it Easter. Festival of the Resurrection, but nonetheless. That's another time. The Sunday before Christmas, I'm just looking at you and saying, it's all or nothing. And John makes that abundantly clear. It's, it's all or nothing. Now, I believe with all my heart that it's all. It's everything. The entire cosmos is explained here in this one passage. Now, when I teach worldview and uh, even systematic theology, one of the things I, I try to begin with every single time are the four questions. Every single worldview has to answer four questions. Otherwise, thinking doesn't happen. Now, there's some prior questions before that, including, is the, is the universe real and can human minds know anything? Okay, I'm just going to say yes to both of those and move on. We'll leave that to, uh, you know, four centuries of Greek philosophy and just let them argue for a few minutes. We're just going to assume that, that reality exists and that our minds are apprehending or are capable of apprehending reality. Then the four questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? What's gone wrong with the world? Is there any hope? And where is history headed? Th those questions. Everyone has to, has to go through life with some sense of operational answers to those questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? The great question of cosmology. You know, is, is this an accident? Is this purposeful? What is this? And uh, that's exactly where the Bible begins, of course, in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In, in, in the beginning. And that does not mean in the beginning of God's time, because He's eternal. It means in the beginning of the sequence of cosmological time. In the drama of redemption. What's gone wrong with the world? It's interesting. Every single worldview around the world, whether it's Marxism or uh, sheer materialism or Jainism or anything else, it, it has to acknowledge something's gone wrong with the world. There isn't a single worldview who goes, yeah, this is the way it's supposed to be. That is so counter to truth and to human experience, nobody can look at a world that includes starving infants and injustice and, uh, and say, oh yeah, this is the way it's supposed to be. Of course, the Bible answers that very clearly, the doctrine of sin, and sin with cosmological consequences. The third question is, is there any hope? And of course, Marxism comes along with a revolution as the great hope. And uh, you can look at almost every other worldview. There's uh, some kind of hope. Uh, it can be hope in self-improvement. It can be hope by uh, some kind of self-deification. It can be all kinds of things. But Everybody has to operate from a worldview every day that explains why we keep doing this. In other words, because if, if, it is, if sin has the last word, then uh, eventually we all get tired of looking at the problems in the world and in the mirror, and you know, there's, no, there's no purpose. Christianity says, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. The fourth question is, where is history headed? Because oddly enough, we are creatures who have not only a consciousness of the present and the past, but also the future. Now, this, this is going to be horribly self-disclosive. Mary's likely to ask me later, why did you say that? Uh, but uh, I have trouble sleeping, and I watch short YouTube videos trying to go to sleep, just trying to clear my mind. I've been reading 
I've been writing, I've been thinking, I need puppies. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it, and it's just, just for a few minutes, just, just to clear the mind. And I have a new genre, because I've told you about the sharks and Malibu artists. Hope you enjoy that. Uh, moved to something fuzzier and puppies. And uh, there's just some sweet, sweet, sweet puppy videos. And I think puppies just show the glory of God. They just do. And they don't know they do, but they really do. And uh, so one of these things with these security cameras shows dogs when you're not there. And, and here's the good and bad news. The good news is they love you. The bad news is they're going to wreck your house. <laughs> I mean, the point is that when you're not there, they're very unhappy. It's just amazing looking at these dogs. You can just see the unhappiness when you're not there, by the way, there's a raft of this going with some people at least going back to work after COVID-19. They got their, you know, COVID puppies and the COVID puppies thought, oh, this is the way life is. They're home all the time. And they start going to work. Well, what is this? And uh, so you see these dogs and it's sweet in this obsessive sort of way. They just, they just keep, keep pacing in front of the door for hours. They don't have a sense of future. Everything's present. So I guess they're afraid that if they walk away from the door, you're just gone forever. So I'm going to stare at this door for eight hours. But my point is that we are the creature with the past, present, and future. We, 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 we think about the future. We cannot not think about the future. And so every worldview has to be based upon something. Again, Marxism says the, the development of a utopian, true communist society and other belief systems have their own eschatology. Our eschatology is the kingdom of Christ. Heaven, hell. So all that to say, those four questions have to be asked and answered. But it's also very important to recognize that most of the people you know in life do not consciously answer those questions. They don't even consciously ask them. And I think about my grandmother. I had two of them, of course. I'm thinking about my mother's mother at this point. Seven generations in Florida. Hard life. Farmed everything. Uh, she took care of fixing everything for a farm family every day. Big meal in the middle of the day, which was called dinner. And uh, every, all the, everybody came in from the farm and just ate. I don't know that she ever thought about cosmology once in her entire life. And I don't mean that as any kind of criticism of her. I'm just saying, I think she got through all of life without thinking any basic cosmological question. I never, I never had a philosophical discussion with my grandmother. Never. But she was living in an age, born in the 19th century. She was living in an age when at least the world she lived in had a settled cosmology so much you didn't have to really talk about it. God made the world. That's it. By the time my generation came along, there was a very different cosmology being taught in school, very different cosmology that was becoming the assumption of the intellectual class. We had to think about things that my grandmother never had to think about. One of the things we need to recognize is that we are never more revelation-dependent than in beginning with the beginning. We're just, we're just incredibly revelation-dependent. So let's just say none of us were there in the beginning. Can we all just say that? We weren't. We were there at our beginning. We don't even remember that. And frankly, we weren't even 
kind of there yet in our beginning, but then when, when was our beginning? You know, how, how do you press back your beginning? Well, eventually you're back here to John chapter 1, verse 1. Eventually you're back to the fact the only beginning that makes any sense for all of us is the beginning that is the same beginning as Genesis 1. And so as, as John is telling us about the meaning of the incarnation of Christ, he says, I've got to go all the way back to Genesis and I've got to point to everything before Genesis that Genesis points to. And that's the self-existent God, the God who is there. And then the God who fashions for His own glory and as a place for our habitation and as the theater of His glory in the drama of redemption, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the most astounding claim. And if you were thinking, okay, in the, in the year 2023, we really need a declarative statement. We do. In, in light of 21st century needs, we need a declarative statement about how the world began. It just so happens that that was given by the Holy Spirit to Moses. That's very convenient. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John, in beginning to tell us about Jesus goes to the very same place, and he knows Genesis very well, as we will see in the course of the next few verses. In the beginning was the Word. Okay, so Genesis begins not with saying in the beginning was God, but in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So God is the assumed being. Well, because of the incarnation, the fact that Jesus is born, Mary's son, and the second person of the Trinity, the very Son of God, John wants us to know that in the beginning was the Word. Now, he knows Genesis, so he knows what he's doing. This is John 1. You compare it to Genesis 1. It's astounding. And, and by the way, it just... Think about this. Think about John, and just from a human perspective, imagine the audacity of beginning anything with the words in the beginning. I mean, again, it has to be revelation. He was not there in the beginning any more than Moses was there in the beginning. This can only come by revelation. So John, by using those words, is making an astounding declaration and confession of revelation. John wasn't there. He can't tell us, I saw this. He can't tell us, I knew this. He can't tell us, I heard the deliberations between the Father and the Son. This can only come by revelation. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And, and that, back in the 70s, that became very cool. Uh, logos, because that's Word. And... Uh, so, there's a long story here. The biblical theology movement that started in Britain in the middle of the 20th century uh, uh, made a great deal of the Logos theme, which well, appropriately so. But the word Logos, that Greek word, just kind of leapt into preachers, and preachers, well, use words they hear, and that's a great one. And so they started using it. And so I can remember when Logos Christian Bookstore, you know, opened up down the street. Well, yeah, that's a just... Greek word, logos, the word, but pretty quickly that, that developed into the Christian consciousness. You know, Jesus is 
the Word. By the late 20th century, you've got a contemporary Bible translation just called the Word, Logos. Uh, you got now this massive software platform for Bible studies called Logos. Well, what then does it mean that it shows up here? In the beginning was the Word. And in almost every English translation, the Logos, in this case, translated Word, rightly, is going to be capitalized because this is a person. And, th and this only makes sense as a person. And here we're greatly helped by Genesis 1, right? Because in the beginning, God. And now it's in the beginning was the Word. Now that's going to be explained to us as the Word becomes flesh. We're not there yet. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now here, it's not just the Greek word that's important. It's all that's behind that word logos. The word logos points to something so basic that we refer to human reasoning as logic. Logos, logic. It's, it's reason. It's, it's thought. It's word. Word representing basically the entire rational structure of the universe. And by the way, this leads to another fascinating thing, which I'll just mention and move on from. One of the great debates by the end of the 20th century had to do with structuralism. Structuralism. Uh, it's a linguistic philosophy that has a lot of political ramifications and basically emerged from the far, far left, Noam Chomsky, uh, if you know that name, and others. And, uh, and, and the idea of structuralism is that human language points to a commonality in that there are certain diphthongs, certain sounds, certain linguistic structures, even certain kinds of uh, verbal forms that appear across all language groups. There, there is, according to the structuralists, some weird correspondence between those sounds and universal human experience. Now, actually, the structuralists, we believe, are bearing testimony to Genesis 1 and indeed to John 1. They're just trying to do so in a materialist worldview, which isn't working because they have no explanation for why babies make the same sounds everywhere. They have no explanation for why almost every language has the word for mother that begins with a mm sound. Okay, so which it does. Uh, and so they say, well, you know, this must be, look at evolution. This is testimony to evolution. You got all these, you have these muh sounds uh, assigned to, uh, to mothers. There must be some kind of basic structural root, you know, and so and for us, there is. That basic structural root is God who created us. But you'll notice, again, if the structuralists say, okay, you got this logos. I'm trying to explain that the word logos, even the fallen secular leftist world recognizes there is a logos. They just want to make it evolution and meaningless. That's what John will not do. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The with God confuses a lot of Christians. Well, if He was God, and He's with God, well, obviously that's a testimony 
to uh, the intimacy of the Son with the Father. And of course, we, we don't have time to do an entire theology of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's really, really important. If, if, if you have any struggle understanding what it means that the Word was with God, then all you need to do is look at the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. And, and that's where everything becomes clear because Jesus then, before the cross, prays to the Father about the glory that He once had when He was with the Father before the Incarnation. So very helpful, very helpful. Just if you have any issues trying to understand that, go from John 1 to John 17. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is... That's just earth-shattering, literally. (laughs) Because again, every single propositional statement here is either true or false. The Jehovah's Witnesses, in their New World Translation of the Bible, do not want God, Jesus to be God, so they put in a word that's not there in any text, by the way. They put in A. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That's parallel, at least in one sense, to uh, a theme of Mormon theology as well, in which we shall be gods. But the, the point is that John knows exactly what he's doing as the Holy Spirit's inspired him here. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what Genesis says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and then everything that follows. And he's just making very clear, okay, this is the one who made everything. And he's going to say that in declarative form. You know who made the world? The Son. He did so at the, at the command and to the glory of the Father. But the one through whom the worlds were made as God created the heavens and the earth, the Father acted through the Son in creation, which leads to another issue. That means that long before we talk about humans, we talk about sin, we talk about the need for redemption, and we talk about the Father working through the Son for our redemption. The Father had already worked through the Son for the creation of the cosmos. Now, we do not know everything about the intertrinitarian relations. We're not meant to. We can't. It's infinite. But we do know this. The Father brings glory to Himself by the Son doing this for Him. Redemption, but before that, even creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God, so He's uncreated. He, he proceeds from the Father, but the Son is uncreated as the Father is uncreated. He was with God. He was with Him from the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So I want you to notice in a way that perhaps you've never just really focused on so intensely how Genesis 1 and John 1 are like volume 1 and volume 2. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The continuation of the story and, as John will make clear, the continuation of the purpose of creation. So this is not a correction of the purpose of creation. This is the fulfillment of the purpose of creation. He was in the beginning with God. Two propositional statements. Number one, all things were made through Him. Second, 
And without him was not anything made that was made. Now, those two propositional statements are so brilliantly connected together that if you were a teacher of logic, you couldn't come up in the 21st century with anything tighter than this. All things, not, not most things, but or just not even just things are made through him, but all things are made through him. So if a thing is a thing, the son made it. And, and then the other statement, which just closes off all further consideration of any other source of being, and without him, nothing that was made was made. So if it is, the son made it. Now, you look at that and you say, well, that's really interesting. I'm going to file that in the very theologically interesting drawer. Okay, I just want to tell you, it's not just theologically interesting. This is what Schaefer said. If you take the biblical worldview seriously, there is no nature and grace problem. And what he meant by that is that the entire medieval world's uh, assumption of a problem of nature and grace is, is a false problem because... The Logos is the creator of all that is. So in other words, the stuff, nature, and grace, Jesus, are inseparable from the beginning. We cannot talk about nature apart from the creator, and we cannot talk about the creator separate from that which he has made. Okay, I hope you feel better. That's about half a millennium of philosophical debate we just dismissed with. A few minutes or seconds. More to it than that? Not less to it than that. If it's true that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, then it's all his. And, and, and you have this very much in the Old Testament. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, there, 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 there's nothing that doesn't belong to God. Well, here's the thing. There's nothing that doesn't belong to Christ. And this is not just true in his exaltation. It's true in the beginning. And it's true before the incarnation, which makes the incarnation even more astounding. What John tells us, and we're about to get there, what John tells us is that God, through the Son, made the dirt and, and, and made every single thing, every single creature, every single being, every single human being. And then the Word became flesh, which is what He made. The Word made flesh, and then the Word obeyed the Father to be made flesh. Now, right here, if we face it clearly, is the most astounding claim found anywhere in Scripture, period. This is it. This is the most astounding claim found anywhere in Scripture. It is the central claim of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, when you gather with your children or grandchildren or great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren, and, and you, you gather them before you and sundry cousins and nephews and whatever and whoever you've got, and you say, here's the Christmas story. I've never heard anyone begin here. I've, ne I've never heard anyone begin with, this is the most astounding thought a human being could think. 
The one who made all flesh became flesh in obedience to the will of the Father. I've never seen a Christmas card with that as a Merry Christmas, open it up, most astounding claim human beings can ever consider. The one who made all things, including all flesh, became flesh. But that's exactly what this text tells us, as we will see as we continue along. In another parallel with Genesis, we have light. In him was life, in verse 4, and the life was the light of men. So there's a life-light metaphor here. Life is light. Light is life. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, okay. This is fun. You go back to Genesis 1, and if we had time, it would be a glorious thing. We just go back to Genesis 1 and follow through the sequence of creation. You think about God's creation of light out of darkness. And, and one of the things to keep in mind here is, is that darkness was real, okay? So in the sequence of creation, God made the cosmos, and the cosmos was dark in that early stage of God's creation. It was dark. The creation of light is the, is the great sequence that begins revelation, that begins knowledge, that begins redemption. And that's why throughout all of Scripture, the most obvious metaphorical comparison is light and darkness. It comes right down to Jesus speaking of the church saying that His own are the children of light in the midst of the children of darkness. And, and it, you know, it, it has illumination, the Holy Spirit's work. Showing us Christ. What is it called? It's called illumination, as in turning on the light. But here in John chapter 1, John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, having walked us through this astounding claim that the Word who has now become flesh is the Creator of all. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And then don't, don't miss this last phrase, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, so here's, here's a fascinating. As you look at the rival worldviews to Christianity, as you think about the, uh, the, the alternative worldviews, light and darkness ends up in almost every one of them because light and darkness is, is one of the most primal, important human experiences. And, and it's something... We all understand. And so by the time you get to like Manichaeanism and Zoroastrianism, and that's uh, basically Persian, then you know, you've got light and darkness in a cosmic battle, and that's the entire cosmic story. Uh, that, that, that's it. The, the, everything going on in the world is a, uh, is a contest between light and darkness. Even in some Jewish Kabbalistic thought, the same thing, and that means non-biblical, but in some Jewish speculative thought, again, it's this, it's this great battle between light and darkness. And we, we kind of understand that because we can turn this into a, you know, a, a, any kind of mythopoetic system. But what the Holy Spirit tells John is that the urgent truth to declare here is not only that in Him was life and the life was the light of men. So Jesus is the light. But remember 
that it was light. If you take the Genesis passage, we, we are, we're told in sequential form what God, how God created the cosmos. And we now know, as John tells us, through the sun and the creation of light out of the darkness is that crucial turning point. And here's the thing. The darkness has not overcome it. Now, we read that, but most Christians rush right past it. If I, if I'd love to design a Christmas card. Merry Christmas. The darkness has not overcome the light. That's one of the greatest statements of Christian truth and Christian hope found anywhere in Scripture. Now, one of the things that reminds us of is the fact that, well, I answered this on Ask Anything Friday, and the question came from a three-year-old. And by the way, on the program, <laughs> I give preference to children, but generally they're a little older than three. But these parents were sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. And they sent in the question by their three-year-old little boy, and it was not only written, there was a little iPhone video of the boy asking the question. It's as sweet as it can be. And he said, why did it take so long for God to send baby Jesus? It's an astounding question. And, you know, it's just parents sharing with a little child the Christmas story and all this long waiting. And the obvious question to a child is, why? Why the wait? And, and that's not... A, Honestly, I was taxed not by answering the question, but by figuring out how to answer the question to a three-year-old. Other than God wanted us to wait because in waiting, two things would happen. We would desire Christ more, the desire of the nations. Remember, that's biblical. And the other thing is we would know more <laughs> because one, another biblical theme is that we're given so much information by the prophets and by divine revelation, that we should know Him when we see Him when He comes. It's another biblical thing. We should know Him when we see Him when, we comes, when He comes, which is what makes the fact that people did not see. He came into His own, and His own received Him not. You know, again, shows the power of sin. But the darkness has not overcome it. A part, a part of the weight, John kind of insinuates, looks risky. A part of these long centuries of waiting looks risky because the power of darkness is so powerful. Well, it's not powerful enough to overcome the light. The darkness has not overcome it. Then very quickly, there's John the Baptist again. A man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to... He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. Again, just really sweet, because here the Holy Spirit's making certain that John gives enough information, John the gospel writer, in order for people to know who John the Baptist is. And the most important thing he can say right now is, he's a witness to the light. That, that, that's a, okay, can't say much about John yet, but here's what I need to tell you. He's a witness about the light. He was not the light. He came to declare the light. And then look at verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. It's the most astounding thing. He was in the world. 
and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. I think most of us would like to think we're spiritually perceptible and even spiritually perceptive people, right? I think we'd like to think that. But here's the, here's the thing, and, and, and this is not as strong a verdict as you would think, okay? And then again, maybe it is. It's hard to know. Let's say that you were in Bethlehem or in Nazareth when Jesus was a baby. Would you have stopped dead in your tracks in the road when you saw Mary carrying Jesus and go, there is the divine Logos who made the world? All things are made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. I dare say you would not have seen such. That's a part of the humiliation, humbling. Paul will speak about this in Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself. He humbled himself to incarnation, and as Paul says, even to the cross. So he came into his own, and his own received him not. Now, it's not just that there would have been many who would have passed the infant Jesus and failed to see who he is. And, and I do think that's understandable. I do not think, I do not think, given sin's power, anyone unaided by revelation would have seen such. And that's, a, that's what follows in all four of the Gospels. It's when Jesus performs a miracle. It's when people hear his words. It's when they go, aha, okay, that has to be who this is. But here we simply have, he came into his own and his own did not know him. But to all, he, he, they didn't receive him. And that's a very crucial word because receive doesn't just mean believe and recognize. It means receive. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, be, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Then we end at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 14, the most astounding thing is how quickly it, it, it just immediately is said, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, only in the sequence of what we just read does that make any sense at all? But in the sequence of what we just read, revealed to us by the Father, given to us by the Holy Spirit through John, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect logos. It makes perfect logic. We now know who He is. It doesn't make the reality of the Word become flesh less amazing, but infinitely more amazing. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have beheld His glory. What kind of glory? Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. As I said, this is, I believe, the most breathtaking passage in all of Scripture to assert Christian truth and to establish the Christian worldview. There's more to it than this, but there cannot possibly be less to it than this. And if all we had 
I really mean this. If all we had was John 1, verses 1 through 14, we would already be drawn to Christ and know of our need for Him. We do know much more, thanks be to God. But we only know all that we know by the gift of divine revelation because He is there and He is not silent. Our Father, we're just so thankful You've given us this time in Your Word together. We pray that You will do with Your Word what You you alone can do and what You promise to do, and that is to magnify Your glory in the hearts of Your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.